0: I want to try to answer a question, it's a big one, it's what makes life worth living? Not a little half-hour answer type question, but I'm going to give it a shot, I actually don't really know if I can pull it off, but we're going to give it a shot and we'll find out together um, whether I can. But that question, what makes life worth living, I don't think it's an overstatement to say I became obsessed with it about twenty-five years ago when I was an atheist at university and there were two problems with the world, life, the nature of being that I just couldn't stop thinking about and drove me into this spot where I was really wondering what the point of it all is. The first was the mortality. The temporary nature of all life, that everything is coming to an end, and and in my mind, if when you die, it's lights out, then what meaning is there to anything? What does it matter if I do well in school or if I drop out of school? What does it matter if I try to make healthy choices or if I stay high all the time? What does it matter if I choose life for myself and the people close to me or take my own life. The other thing that really bothered me was the nature of hardship and suffering in the world. And this is a thing that I think we've all experienced. It's one of the age-old theological questions is, why do awful things happen to good people and, and crooked people seem to prevail, and, and why is there so much hardship and mess and suffering and horror out there in the world? And in my own life, why was my own life so difficult? And those two things, the inevitable end of everything and the, the seemingly meaningless hardship and suffering of life, really took me down some twisted corridors and I followed that question, what's the point down all its little dark paths? And dropped out of college and stayed high for probably two years. Retrospectively, I think I was probably clinically depressed, though I didn't have a diagnosis and I, I was just self-medicating, and even landed on some days um, with it's not worth it, suicidal, and really considering in a cold, calculated way, ending it all, and became obsessed with this question that I'm, the Lord has begun to answer for me, and I'm going to attempt to answer today. There's only so much we can do in a half an hour because in a very real sense, I think that your entire life on earth is designed to answer that question for you, that God is going to use your entire life from birth until death to answer the question of what makes life worth living. But maybe in a half an hour, we can get like a little cheat sheet or a little compass that will help us look at things a little bit better. And this is a really important question because this is a question that I really think every single man And women will ask at some point in their life, and maybe some of you have come here today really in the depths of this question right now like, what is the point? What makes it worth living? Because life is hard. Life is really hard. And anyone who says something different is selling something to you. Um, I want to have an adult conversation about the realities of life, not a naive answer to this question where you sort of push the negative things to the side and willfully blind yourself to the hardships and the suffering realities of existence, because that will only get you so far until suffering comes, until something hard comes, until life punches you in the gut and it will lay you low if you don't have some kind of answer so what's the point of all this that can hold water and so i want us to have a a courageous forthright conversation that takes into account the way the world actually is and it turns out that there are answers to this question and it's important because life is hard wherever you are life is hard i mean if you're if you're single and you're cool with it, it's hard because other people try to convince you that you should be getting married. If you're single and you want to get married, it's hard because you're looking for someone to get married. If you're married, well, marriage is hard. If you're married and it's not going really well, it's really, really difficult. If your marriage falls apart, it's awful. If you don't have kids and you're cool with it, then you've got to put up with people pressuring you about not having kids. If you do have kids and you're not cool with it, well, ugh. Sorry. And if you do have kids and you're trying to do the best you can, it's really hard. If you got your dream job, then you've you got to really earn it. You've got to really work for it. If you've got a job that you hate, then you have a job that you hate. If you don't have a job at all, you would rather have the job that you hate. Every, no matter what path your life takes, life is really hard. Even when things are at their best, there's always something. There's some little pain there's something you don't have money for. There's some relationship that's sideways. And if you if you scratch into people's lives, you find out there's a lot. People that you would immediately write off as they got they have an easy life, you scratch under the surface a little bit, everybody is facing something. Everybody is fighting a terrible battle. And some of you may be in it right now. And if you're not in it right now, just wait a little while because it is coming. Because it is the, that is the nature of life. And I want I want to really Bury this point. In this world, in this life, all good things end in sadness. Every marriage ends in sadness, whether death or divorce. Every one of us dies, maybe prematurely, unexpectedly, tragically. It's terrible. Or maybe you live a long life to the end and gradually accumulate increasing hardships, weaknesses, illnesses, physical and mental until your body eventually gives out. So there is this sort of inescapable reality that life is really hard and it begs this question, what what can get you up in the morning? What will get you to put one foot in front of the other when it feels like life is not worth living? And to make things even worse, the answer that our culture... (laughs) because it's not bad enough yet. The answer that our culture has provided, I don't buy it. So, I think the best our culture has been able to come up with to what makes life worth living is happiness. Happiness. It's very deeply woven into our moment in history, our psyche. It, it's written in the Declaration of Independence that, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, A God-given inalienable right is the pursuit of happiness, but I don't buy it, but it's in us. I mean, we think that. I just want you to be happy. I just want to be happy. I find myself thinking about my own children and sometimes almost saying out loud, whatever makes you happy. It's so deeply woven into us, and the problem is it just doesn't work for at least two reasons. First off, the pursuit of happiness literally doesn't work. It backfires. If you if you think about the people that are the most obsessed with happiness, a lot of times they're the most miserable people you ever meet. Because coming at happiness directly is almost like chasing a mirage in the desert that keeps dissolving in front of you or or gripping sand in your hand, and the tighter you grip it, the more it slips out of your hand. Because what if happiness is actually a byproduct of something different? What if the only People who are capable of sustained happiness are people who have been formed by experiences you would never choose to go through if you made happiness the goal for your life. So it it, it doesn't work, and where does happiness leave you when the inevitable hardships of life come? If happiness is the whole point, well, when you're at the funeral of somebody that you love and will miss, where are you? When you get a bad diagnosis, where are you? When your children are sick, where are you? Happiness is great. I'm not I don't I'm not suggesting that we be jaded or cynical about happiness. When happiness comes, take it. I love being happy. It's just not good enough to justify the hardships of living. The pursuit of happiness won't get you out of bed when things are rough. And God forbid you ever experience like depression, like real dark mental illness. The pursuit of happiness cannot get you to put one foot in front of the other when that dark cloud settles over your life. It turns out though that there is something far better than happiness. And I want to try to look at it in Scripture. I want to look at a place that you wouldn't be likely to look um, and a place that you probably wouldn't even want to go. spiritual treasures are so often hidden in places like that, and this is no exception. I want to look at what I think is the lowest moment in one of the greatest men in sacred history's life, Elijah. Elijah, whose name means, Yahweh is my God. And that was a very provocative name for him, especially at that point in redemptive history, because... There was sort of a battle of the gods going on at that point. If you dropped in as an outside observer, you may not be able to tell how special and unique Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, was compared to the Baals, the Lord of thunder and rain, or Asherahs, or these other gods that Elijah's own countrymen, including the king Ahab, Ahab and the queen Jezebel, had turned away towards and taught thousands to turn away towards. And in this time, when so many were panting after these other gods, up rises Elijah, whose name means, Yahweh is my God. And he was a a towering figure in sacred history. of the many things that God did through him, there are two miracles that stand out above the rest. One, he stood up against the prophets of the Baal, the Lord of thunder and rain, and he said, it will not rain for over three years. And no matter how they prayed, no matter how vigorously they performed their sacred ceremonies and asked the Lord of rain to make it rain, it did not rain for over three years. And then the second was this massive showdown on a mountaintop where crowds were gathered and Elijah faced off against hundreds of the prophets of Baal and Asherah and they had two sacrifices and they had agreed that they would both call on their gods to send fire from heaven, to burn up the sacrifice, and the Lord's The the prophets of the Lord of Baal, the Lord of thunder and lightning, cried out to him. They beat themselves. They danced and prayed for hours and hours. Nothing. Elijah stepped forward and instructed the servants to douse the sacrifice with hundreds of gallons of water, said a simple prayer to Yahweh, and lightning crackled from the sky and vaporized the sacrifice. The prophets of Baal were put to death. All the people worshipped Yahweh. Elijah was vindicated in front of his enemies, a literal high on the top of the mountain, a spiritual and metaphorical high. And then the passage we're going to look at today is when he plunges down from that mountaintop experience into the dark depths of despair. This is 1 Kings chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Now just to think emotionally of how you would receive a threat like that. I I don't know if you, I'm sure you've had an experience walking on the street where you you bumped into somebody or stepped off a curb or ran into somebody who, who wasn't viewing the world in the correct way and had some kind of negative interaction. Like, one time I stepped off the curb and this guy, like, cursed me out, out his open window. And it takes you, you know, if you live in New York for a while, it happens sort of on the regular, so you, you bounce back a little bit more quickly, but it takes you a little while to dig yourself out emotionally from an experience like that. Well, imagine, like, a voicemail on your phone of, like, a death threat from just some random person. I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill your kids. It would take you a couple of days to to dig yourself out of that emotional experience. Imagine a credible death threat from a visible, evil politician that had the power to enforce this on your life. You'd be terrified, and Elijah is, as any of us would be. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. So he, he leaves his servant behind. He goes off completely by himself a day's journey into the wilderness. He just wants to be completely alone. He isolates himself. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. I think the, the modern day equivalent to this is like, you go into your room, you pull the blinds, you get in bed and pull the blanket over your face and go to sleep and you just it's, you shut out the world. It's like, I just want this to all go away. And I, I think the only modern word we can use for the way that Elijah is feeling is that he is suicidal. He's praying to God, take my life. And he's having an existential crisis, a deep spiritual crisis. I am no better than my ancestors. I thought I was different. I thought I was on a different track. I thought this was going to make a difference. And I was wrong. I'm no better. What's the point? I just want to die. And he goes to sleep. Now, first thing I want to point out here is that Elijah is in a bad Place. But he is in a bad place because he's following the Lord. And I say that this because I think, and, and I have been in a bad place before. I have been in a dark, depressed place before. I think we have a tendency to be way harsher with ourselves than we would ever be with anybody else. We have a tendency to kick ourselves when we're down, especially when things in our lives seem to be going okay and we're still sad and can't figure out why then the guilt comes in, and we just, how how dare you feel this way? You got a job, you got this is going good, how people have so much less, and you you just come up and just kick yourself in the ribs over and over and over again. You say things, I say things to myself you would never say to somebody else, and we have a tendency to do this to ourselves when life is not going well, and I really want to point out that Elijah is in this spot because he's doing the right thing, because he's following God. Now, bad things happen for all kinds of reasons, and I'm not saying it's a bad idea to do some evaluation when life isn't going well. It's probably a good idea when, when bad things happen to say, did I, is this a consequence of something I did? Is there a pattern in my life that's not a good pattern that needs to be changed and you know, maybe get some wisdom about that? Did I make some kind of boneheaded mistake that I'm paying for? And I say that because sometimes we do. I mean, I have definitely done some stupid things and paid the price for it in my life. So it's not a bad idea to ask that question, but... We also go through bad things for unexplainable reasons. I don't want to say random because I don't think that's quite the right word, but unexplainable. That's what God says to Job at the end of the book of Job. When it's a righteous man, his whole life falls apart, his kids are all killed, terribleness. And God comes at the end of the book and He says, Job, basically, you're not big enough to understand why these things happened. You're just not. It'd be like me trying to explain calculus to a six-month-old. It's just not possible, much as I might even want to explain it. And I don't know whether God will ever grow us big enough to be able to understand these things. Maybe that's His plan. Maybe His plan is to grow us to that point where He could or where we could hear it. But we're not there now. And there are things that happen. Sometimes life just cuts you off at the knees. And sometimes you suffer because you did the right thing. Sometimes you you serve somebody, love somebody, give, and it costs you. Sometimes you take a stand or speak up and people turn against you. Sometimes people say untrue things about you because there's something about you that threatens them. Sometimes in life you suffer for doing the right thing. And I think that's really important uh, to sort of short-circuit that tendency we have to kick ourselves when we're down. I don't have time to go into this whole story, I've talked about it before, but Lindsay and I went through a really, really tough period in our lives that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy when we suffered through four miscarriages. And at one point, I was reading the scripture and I read about John the Baptist's parents, and it says in the New Testament that his parents were righteous, but they were childless. And that verse came to me like a life preserver in a stormy ocean, I clung to it, they were righteous. they were childless. Because I was in the middle of, did I do something wrong? Are you punishing me? Why is this happening? They were righteous, but they were childless. Once Jesus' disciples brought a blind man to Him and they said, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin that he was born blind? And Jesus said, it has nothing to do with sin that he was born blind. He was born blind so that the glory of God might be revealed through his life. And in that instance, He healed him. God doesn't always reveal His glory in that way. But in that instance, He did. So the first thing I want you to know is you could be where you're at because you're exactly on the right track. And I know that's not a popular way to try to sell Christianity. If I were going to try to sell Christianity, I would sell you happiness. But it wouldn't get you very far. And there's something better the second thing I want you to know, especially if you're in that spot right now, and in a room this size, it's possible somebody's there right now. Like Maybe, maybe God even brought you here this morning because you're in the, in the depths of that question. Is it worth it? What makes life worth living? I really want you to know that you are not alone. No matter how alone you feel, you're not alone. There are other people that feel the way you feel. And if you had the courage to speak up, Oh my gosh, the purpose your life could have, the way that you would free other people to feel the things that they're feeling. And if you would have the, and I, I, don't, I don't know what it would take for you to do this. This might be very difficult to do. But it, if you could let one other person know even, it might be like a, a crack in the door to a dark room. Not that it's going to fix everything, but it, it, sometimes that could just let in the tiniest little bit of light. And it may be that you need to talk to a friend or talk to a pastor, or it may be that professional help is the right thing for you. It can be the case that there are neurological or biochemical things going on, just as there can be physical ailments going on. There can be physical problems going on with our mental health, and we can help direct you to the right place if you want to start taking steps uh, towards investigating some professional help. It could be some professional talk therapy. I'm not a a therapist. It's not in my wheelhouse, but somebody that is really skilled shepherd of the mind that could help you walk through the things that you're thinking. And none of that is to say that there'd be some, necessarily, some kind of cure, although God does certainly cure people. It may be that it's just something that needs to be managed, but I don't want you to think that there's nothing that you can do, that you have no purpose, because it may be that it could be managed. And if you could just tell one person, come up and talk to one of the people praying at the end of the service, or come talk to me, I, I, I'll do whatever I can for you. But if you could just tell one person, it could be the beginning of a change. And that's important because God is a gentleman and typically does not force Himself into people's lives. Typically, He lets you decide that you want it. And it's the case for Elijah, Because maybe like him, maybe you don't feel like you could talk to anybody, but I wonder, could you at least talk to God? Could you at least have like a real prayer, not a Sunday school prayer, but like a prayer where you tell him what you're really feeling? Because that's exactly what Elijah does. He gets off by himself and he says, God, I don't want to live anymore. I'm no better than my ancestors. He prayed to die. I mean, that's as real as it gets. And God... Responds Now, I don't know that he would always respond the same way to each of us. We're all individuals, and God knows exactly what he's doing. But what he does for Elijah is he sends an angel. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. Elijah looked around, and there was at his, by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Now, I want you to notice that when Elijah has this very real prayer, God responds to let him know you're not alone. And, but the angel doesn't come and like kick him and say like, dude, buck up, man. You got a man up. He doesn't give him a pep talk. He doesn't say like, get your life together, man. You got to get up and go out and get it. He serves him. He makes him some food. And then he says to him, the journey is too much for you. The journey is too much for you. And what I want to say to you is the journey is too much for you. The place that God is trying to take us we would never dream to even ask Him. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has in store for those who love Christ Jesus. We would never even have the imagination to ask for it. And if we knew what God was going to have to bring us through to become the kinds of people who could enjoy it, we'd never choose to go down that road. He loves us even more than we love ourselves. And the journey is too much for you. So when you come to a place in life where you have to invite other people in, where you need help, that is very far from an indication that you're doing something wrong. It's actually proof positive that you're on the right track because the journey that God has for you is too much for you. But what the angel says works. Elijah gets up, and he travels 40 more days and 40 more nights until he gets to the mountain of God. And what was it? This is where the, the, the secret is hidden in this passage, the, the answer to that question, what makes life worth living? It's in that word journey. Journey. Now, in these days, everything about our relationship with the Lord was geographical. It's just the way man thought about things in this age. You met God at certain places, at the tabernacle, in the temple, at the high places. People took physical pilgrimages from one place to another. And in the New Testament explains that these physical, geographical things, the way the tabernacle is laid out, is a metaphor for spiritual and heavenly realities. And so the more the way that our faith has unfolded in the years since, the more modern way of thinking about that word journey is probably something more like purpose or meaning or maybe even responsibility. And the angel says, the journey is too much for you. And it's this idea of journey that you're not where you're supposed to be yet, that you're on your way somewhere. That's the thing that gets Elijah up. And where is he going? He's going to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And, and in that mountain, in that cave, he's going to have a once-in-a-lifetime, a, a once-in-history encounter with the living God. So, there's, there's two things that get Elijah going. One is presence, the presence of God. And the other is purpose. This is how it unfolds. That night, he's in the cave, and the Spirit of God says to Elijah, Elijah. Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah says, I've been very zealous for you, but it's not working. The Israelites have all turned away from you, and they've killed all the prophets of Yahweh, and they're trying to kill me now. And God says to him, go back into the cave, because I'm going to pass by. I'm going to reveal my presence to you. And it says that there was an earthquake that rattled the stone, and there was a fire from heaven, a roaring fire, and then there was a wind that rushed through, that shook the mountaintop, but God was not in the earthquake He was not in the wind and he was not in the fire. And then there was a gentle whisper, Elijah. And then God's presence gives him some instructions. He says, I want you to go back. I want you to anoint this guy to be king. I want you to go anoint this guy to be your successor. Have you got things that you need to do? And he sends him back down off the mountain with instructions. Presence Not where we would be likely to look. And purpose, you got things to do. This purpose, meaning, destination, responsibility. This has the power to get you up in the morning when you don't feel like getting up in the morning. This has the power to to, to prompt you to put one foot in front of the other. You've got things to do. There's a purpose to your life. We miss it though because we look too big. We look at the fire and the earthquake and the wind and not the gentle whisper. Carl Jung, a famous psychiatrist, said, man does not see God because he does not look low enough. And we miss God because we don't look low enough. So many people missed Jesus because they didn't look low enough. A baby, a carpenter, an ordinary man. And what was extraordinary about him, he said what the Father told him to say, and he kept in step with the Holy Spirit. And that ordinary man is the most influential human being who has ever walked the earth without a close second. But we miss God because we don't look low enough. And the fruit of these things, presence and purpose, is something so much better than happiness. The word that the Bible uses for it is joy. And joy is a deep thing, joy is a rich thing. Joy is like this. So my job, um, how I, we pay our bills is I teach math in a charter school. And my, the population of students that I teach, are, many of them are going through some very difficult things. And so it's not like a happy job. Now, it's, the kids are hilarious, and I do a lot to make it fun, and we definitely have a lot of happy moments. But if I was looking at my life from the perspective of, you know, what would just make me happy, I would not do this job. I have a very different set of feelings when I'm getting ready to go into this building than I do when I have like a day off that we're going to go to the beach. It's very different. But I have this file folder of all these notes and letters and drawings that students have made for me over the year. And I keep that file folder at the end of the school year. I put it in the top of one of the storage boxes. And I put that box in my closet last and lock it up so that when I go back in at the beginning of the school year, which I'm getting ready to do, and I open up my closet, that's the first box I take out. And I open that lid and that's the first folder I take out. And there are notes and letters and drawings in there from kids that I never would have dreamed that kids would say things like this about me. And it's something better than happiness. Or it's like this. I, I was giving a talk like this sometime recently, and it was a very forgettable talk. I don't even remember what it was about. And at the end of the uh, service, this young woman came up to me, and God was doing something. Their tears were right behind her eyes. And we got talking, and the, the tears started to flow, and there was some stuff going on in her life that had to come out. And it was one of those moments where time just stopped because God was doing something. And that moment, made my whole life worth living, that moment, but it was not a happy moment. She was crying, but it was a joyful moment. And it's hard to, it's hard to describe what joy is, but joy is something so much better than happiness. It's, you can have joy when you're sad, and joy is a fruit of the presence of the Spirit of God. It's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And so far as I can tell, joy is a fruit of the purposes of God. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Presence and purpose and joy, that'll get you up in the morning. That's deeper and richer and less temporary than happiness. Now, the question then is, though, how do, where, how do I start? You know, where do I start presence and, and purpose? Well, you, you start with just real straight conversations with God, and you start small and close. You start small and close. It doesn't matter how isolated you feel like you are. You are going to pass people today on the street that you could pray for, and you have no idea what those prayers might do. Living in New York City, you're going to lay your eyes on somebody on the train this week that maybe nobody has ever prayed for before, and you'll be the first person to pray for that person. It doesn't matter how isolated you are, how, how much you feel like you have nothing to offer, purpose is something that comes, can come into every single one of our lives. God was laying out good works for you to do before the dawn of time. There is a purpose to your life. Your purpose may be simply to open up about what you're going through and that will embolden somebody else to open up about what they're going through. You start small and close. Maybe it's as simple as starting to drink eight glasses of water a day or organizing one shelf in your room or getting your financial house in order. And you may think that I'm joking about that, but I don't know if the world has seen the upper limit of what God can do through a man or a woman that starts small and close, and I'll prove it to you. So back in those days when I was going through all this questioning, and and I didn't believe God was real, and I thought life was over when you died, and God reached into my life. I I became a believer mostly by reading the Scripture for myself for the first time. And if you've never read the Bible for yourself, you owe it to yourself to do it, to read it for yourself. Don't take anyone else's word for it. Read it for yourself. But other things happened, too, as I started to pray experimentally and whatever, and one of the things that happened was very strange from any, like, objective perspective. I came home to my apartment, my dingy little apartment that I was living in after I dropped out of university, and um, came home, and there was these little plastic baggies hanging on all the doorknobs in the apartment building, and there were some kids from the first floor running through the building stealing chocolate bars out of those plastic baggies, and I was like, "What's this about?" So I got to my door and I took off the baggie, and inside the baggie, there was no chocolate bar because it had already been taken out of it. But there was some like literature from a nearby church, and there was a VHS in there. Do you guys know what VHS are? Is that, is it, you guys know? Okay, all right. So this VHS was this is a really weird film. It's called "The Jesus Video," which is the only way I can describe it is it's the, the most low-budget bathrobe, costume, you know, depiction of one of the Gospels that you could imagine. And they they shot it. The guy who plays Jesus is really weird. He's got these really intense eyes and this kind of broad forehead and he's kind of off-putting. And the way that they shot it was usually you don't see the mouth of the speaker, so they would like show the back of Jesus' head teaching a crowd so that they could dub it in every language in the world without having the sync problems. And they would subtitle it in different languages and whatever. And missionaries have used this in the middle of nowhere. Like, they have crept out into the bush in Afghanistan and set up inflatable um, film screen, movie screens and played this video. And Rick Warren, the, the pastor of Saddleback Church, said that no, no tool invented in modern day has led more people to Christ than the Jesus video. Um, it's probably on YouTube now. I've never checked it out. But anyway, it's a really weird thing for God to use. And this particular copy of the Jesus video that I got was in Mandarin. <laughs> I don't speak Mandarin, um, but there was a lot of Chinese people in my building, and this was from a Chinese church nearby, so that, that's how they reached out. It was subtitled in English, though, so fortunately, I was able to follow along what was being said. But I watched this depiction it's basically a frame-by-frame depiction of the gospel in Mandarin, and read the subtitles in English. And was just blown away once again by the power of this man, this otherworldly, countercultural man, and, and this, this one-of-a-kind story that the innocent man willingly gave his life for the guilty, for me. And at the end of this video, there was this suggested prayer. If you felt like Jesus was who He claimed to be and wanted to surrender your life to Him, pray words like these. And I got on my knees in my little apartment, and while they prayed in Mandarin, I prayed out loud in English, and I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. Now, I sent an email to the minister of that church, and I thanked her for this, and she was super gracious, and, all oh, thank you so much for telling me about this. But nowadays, I don't find myself thinking about her as much. I find myself thinking about the person that put that video and the chocolate bars and the literature in those bags, because someone did that. And the person that hung that bag on my doorknob, because someone did that. Someone hung that bag there. Or the guy with like a grease under his nails because Fast Orange couldn't get the oil off from the tire change place that he works at, or the old lady in the hat who pulled out a $5 bill and put it in the offering plate that purchased that video from me. And I doubt very seriously that any of those people had any idea that a few hours later I was going to be on my knees in my apartment praying a prayer at the end of that video giving my life to Christ. And that's why I say maybe you get your financial house in order and maybe that enables you to put $5 in the offering plate at some church somewhere a few months later and we have not discovered the upper limit of what God might do through us if you would start small and close. Presence and purpose The fruit of it is joy. It was for the joy set before Him that Jesus endured the cross. So I want you to imagine time immemorial before time and space even existed and the persons of the Godhead were in eternal, loving communion with one another. And the Father said to the Son, if we do this, if we make them, with their incredible, unthinkable capacity for beauty and goodness, and horrific, horrible, hell on earth, it's going to go sideways. And I'm going to want you to go down there. And it's going to be rough. You will skin your knees as a little boy, and you will hit your thumb with a hammer when you're working for your father's handyman business. And you're going to be a weird kid who's kind of into his Bible and Everyone's going to misunderstand you and you're going to make a lot of people feel threatened and they're going to misquote you and they're going to talk on you and they're going to say things about you that are not true. And in the end, a crowd of people are going to cheer for a murderer to be released from prison instead of you so that you will have to take that cross and walk up the hill and have your hands nailed into it and bleed to death on display for the world in excruciating, torturous pain. And then you can imagine Jesus looking down while the eons flicker by and meeting his father's eyes and saying, to what end would we do this? And the father gets a big smile on his face and says, oh, that's that's the best part. You'll get a whole bunch of brothers and sisters for joy. And Jesus says, sign me up. you. I don't know how much happiness will come into your life if you follow the Lord, and I don't know what gifts await you on the mountain of God when you get to your journey to be conformed to the image of Jesus, which is your destiny if you set your hand to this path. In my experience, personally, I've gotten a whole lot more happiness than I deserve, and I think that's the normal experience. But I do know this, regardless of how happiness comes and goes, at the end, you will look back and you will say, It was worth it.